All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this incredible privilege of gathering together as family, Father, in a unity that you've provided from eternity past to our benefit, but to bring glory to your Son's good name. Father, thank you for moments in time like this. Thank you for always keeping things real, for giving us the Word of God. We know that it's the truth that sets us free, Father. Thank you for all of these things, your grace, your mercy, your love. We pray for those that still can't be with us this morning, who earnestly desire to be here, Father, but for a variety of reasons cannot be. We want them to know that we're with them in spirit, Father, that we pray for them, for your comfort, and that you return them to the fold. Your will be done in your timing, of course. We pray also for those that are still lost in this world, Father, without hope that they be humbled and receive saving faith before it's too late. We'd love to have additional brothers and sisters in Christ for all of eternity. We're most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and to make a morning like this a time to rejoice. We do just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, part nine of Proverbs 17. Again, we had a good or the good privilege of getting the final installment of eternal assurance, let not your hearts be troubled from Scott on Thursday. And as he always does, um, we want to do a little bit of review because it's such a wonderful series. And just sharing a little bit, I always wonder how the Spirit chooses to spread them out. Right? I think you did like parts one and two, and then there was a little gap, and then he did part three. And then there was a huge gap, and then he just did the final installment, part four. I mean, he started that series before the shutdown, and it was only four parts. And that might have even been before some of you even heard any message from this pulpit. So you may have missed the first two or three installments. And if he had done them all at once, you would have missed the entire gist of eternal assurance. And so he spread it out. And some of you heard and learned about eternal assurance, or as some folks call it, eternal security. doesn't matter as long as you understand the concept. That might have been the first time. So I think as a, you know, when I think about the curriculum that the Spirit's got us on, I always think about those things. New people being privy to eternal truths that were taught or started to, uh, be taught uh, even before they started coming to the, to the church. In any case, eternal security is such an important topic for all of us to abide in. And I'll admit, you know, sometimes I get familiar myself with the simple fact that once a person is saved, they are always saved. And I think one of the nuances from this pulpit has been the emphasis has been put on once. That's the thing. Once a person is saved, they're always saved. Um, 
perversions come around, and I think we put the emphasis on the wrong thing. We say, well, I'm already saved, so the emphasis is on always being saved. Wait a minute, back up. Whoa, 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 back up. Are we sure about that first part? Because we like to glaze over that part, don't we? Oh, once saved, always saved. But what about the once part? Did it actually happen? Are you actually saved? So it's been interesting to see what the Spirit's been saying from this pulpit for years now. Ever since the gospel reload back in 2015. The emphasis has actually been on once. Okay, great. Once that thing's done, okay. Eternal assurance, eternal security, it's all good. But that once better be real. That's a flashback to the emphasis on salvation proper, um, what Scott was getting at this past week. All of that is sort of a flashback to what the Spirit's been saying from this pulpit for years now. Uh, briefly stated up here on the board, uh, eternal assurance, a believer's life is perfectly secured in Christ Jesus. That person has been made alive in Christ, released from the bondage of spiritual death. Go to Romans 6, verse 3. Romans 6, 3. So this is kind of the summary of that four-part series. Again, on eternal assurance, Romans 6, verse 3. A believer's life is perfectly secured in Christ Jesus. That person has been made alive in Christ, released from the bondage of spiritual death. Well, let's read about it. Romans 6, 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And again, we're talking about spiritual baptism here, not water baptism. Baptism meaning to be identified with, to be made into union with. That's where Paul gets that phrase, in Christ, from. We're in Christ. We've been baptized into union with him. That's what that word baptismo means uh, in the Greek uh, original language. Baptized into Christ Jesus. We were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Verse 5, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Now, here's verse 9. This is what amplifies what the Spirit started off with this morning. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Think about that. He's conquered death itself. And that is really at the base of our eternal security because we are made in union in Christ Jesus. 
For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Right? In other words, if you were to believe that you could, if you were a believer and you could lose salvation, it would be like saying someone or something could kill that new life in you, which would be tantamount to saying you could kill the life in Christ. You see? And so because you've been baptized into union with him, you have been giving that, given that eternal life, which cannot be killed. Again, the point on the board, eternal assurance, a believer's life is perfectly secured. In Christ Jesus, that person has been made alive in Christ, released from the bondage of spiritual death. Now, if you recall, much of what the Spirit orchestrated through Scott during his four-part series on eternal assurance was prompted by a blog I wrote uh, pretty a long time ago, actually, up here in the board. It was titled, Assurance of Salvation is by Grace Through Faith. That was a blog. I don't remember the date on it, but it was probably a couple years ago now, right? Yeah. But he pulled a lot of the, the content from that four-part series from this one blog. It was the launching pad. One of the points was, as true believers, we have an abiding love and eagerness for Christ that unbelievers do not have. And that has everything to do with that line in the sand I drew. I made a big deal over the word once, right, earlier. That's what I'm talking about. Once that happens, you have an abiding love. If that never happened, it doesn't matter what you proclaim, even as a so-called Christian with the John 3.16 t-shirt or the tattoo or whatever, it does not matter unless you've crossed that line. Once you cross that line, you have an abiding love. If you have not, you don't, which means you can fall away. We call those apostates. They fall away from the faith that we cling to. 1 Corinthians 16, 22, Philippians 3, 20 to 21, 1 John 3, 1 to 3. Now, this might be the great litmus test. I was thinking about this particular principle from Thursday's message. This might be the great litmus test for private examination of self. Do I honestly, in all humility, do I stand up to this test? In other words, do I truly love Jesus Christ? I can't answer that for you. I can look at your fruit and suggest, hey, maybe you've got like a bigger problem here. Maybe you should really think about the gospel and what you think you believe about Jesus Christ. Did you just say some you know, flippant kind of prayer sometime when you were eight? Did you just kind of walk down an aisle or did you, did you have an emotional epiphany about a truth or something? And that's the end of it? Or do you actually have an abiding love for Jesus Christ? Because the Bible says that we're changed forever. We're made alive. We're placed into union with him. We are changed for good. So that's that. I think about the point on the board, and I think about in the privacy of our own souls, do I truly love Jesus Christ? It's a good litmus test to take. For a believer, the good news for a believer, the affirmation comes as a portion of the Spirit's grace in our lives. Remember that. It's okay to sit back and go, I've done it. Honest to goodness. I have done it myself, and I've been teaching now for over a decade. And I say, make sure, I don't have any doubts, but you know what I'm saying, right? 
I ask that question. And you say, and the Spirit always says, of course you are. You absolutely are. Here's why. Look at your fruit, even. Just look at your life. Look at your love for the Son of God. Go to 1 John 3.23. 1 John 3.23. That's the beauty of being a believer. The affirmation always comes directly from the Spirit. And He always tells you, of course you are. What if you ask the question and it's crickets? You, you get the point? Yeah, that's the point. 1 John 3.23. And this is a commandment that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. In other words, that we be saved. 1 John 3.23. The, uh, the reference there is salvation. And guess what? Love one another, just as He has commanded us. Look at verse 24, though. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God. Remember, the gospel is a commandment. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a commandment. We are commanded to believe. A good portion of human history disobeys. We call them sons of disobedience. Where do you think they get their name? Because they disobey the primary directive, if you want to call it that, that's embedded into the gospel proper. Again, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us. You ready? By the spirit whom he has given us. That's how we know. He's going to tell us. He's going to indicate to us, hey, listen, and sometimes you have to go in deep prayer and reflection. That's why prayer is so important. That's why fellowship with him is so very important. That's why you don't crowd your daily schedule seven, you know, seven days a week, 24 hours a day with other stuff. You have to leave room for him to pray, to fellowship with him, time alone, so that he can reveal such things to you. He wants to encourage each one of us. Amen? Of course he does. He wants us to know that we have his grace, we have his love, we have his mercy, we have eternal life. He wants us to know that we're eternally secure in him. And so he, his spirit, the spirit of Christ tells us. That's what Holy Scripture says to us. The spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, will inform us. Hence our next point of review up here on the board. Assurance of salvation is by grace through faith, again, is the name of the blog. As true believers, we are given spiritual discernment. Remember, an unbeliever can't understand these things because they are spiritually appraised. Remember Paul wrote that? It's because they don't have the apparatus even. They don't have the faculties to even understand spiritually appraised things. That's a fact. 1 Thessalonians 5.21, 1 Timothy 2.11-13, 6, 3 to 6, 2 Peter 3, 14 to 16, 1 John 2, 12 to 19, 4, 1 to 6. Obviously no shortage on this topic of spiritual discernment. A saved person is also ever aware of God's sovereignty up here on the board. As true believers, we are acutely aware of God's holiness and the presence and power of sin, and we are grateful for the God-given ability to confess it, remember homo legato just means say the same thing. Yep, Lord, I see it. I'm a sinner. I still sin. I still sin because, you know what? I like it. Right? Anybody who sins because they don't like it? You sin because you like it in that moment in time. You don't like it after the fact, maybe. But you like it while you're doing it, hence you do it. It's usually the baseline of human motivation, right? Why do we do anything? Because we want to. 
We pretty much don't do anything we don't want to do. <laughs> Anyways, we're grateful for the God-given ability to confess it and then repent from it. Romans uh, 7, 14 to 25, 2 Corinthians 7, 10, and then 1 John 1. I want to do something this morning. We haven't done it in a while. I want to read 1 John 1. I love 1 John 1 so much. It's so edifying. It's so uplifting. And it's got the sovereignty of God in there. It's got confession in there. It's got salvation in there. Where are you guys going? I'm not done. Who said we're going there right now? I just said maybe sometime we'll read it. Can you go to 1 John 1 now? So anxious. You guys must love it too. 1 John 1, 1 is amazing. Amen? And you read, you, first, you read John 1 and then 1 John, same author, right? For John, same writer. John 1 and 1 John 1. You read those, it's like back to back, and your head just goes, and it's awesome. Because it, 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 it reminds you of how unbelievable our God is. 1 John 1, 1. I don't want to, I mean, what's that? That's just my estimation, which I can't say anything better than what's written, so let's read what's written. 1 John 1, 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it. This is about Jesus Christ, my friends, and testified to it and proclaimed to, to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be made complete. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar." And his word is not in us. Look at verse 2, uh, two one. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Think about that as well. When you go to that private place in your soul, am I a believer? What does verse, 1 John 2, 3 say? And by this we know that we have come to know him. How? If. Do you see that question? Do you see it? If. There's a condition here. If we keep his commands. Does that mean you keep every commandment perfectly? No, we're sinners. Of course not. We're talking about habitual. We're talking about, remember, as like MacArthur would say, um, it's not about perfection, it's about direction, right? Am I still going towards him? Is my daily walk towards Jesus Christ? Is that what motivates me, what drives me, what gets me out of bed in the morning? Is that me? 
is that, is that me now? Because before I could care less. It was always about me. But have I become one of his own? Do I follow the great shepherd when I hear his voice? That's the point in verse 3. It's about habit. It's about direction. And only you can answer that for yourselves. Again, by this we know that we have come to know him. How? If we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected, or matured is the actual original there, matured. By this we may know that we are in him. Verse 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Jesus Christ walked in a certain direction. Is that fair enough for a visual? He walked in a certain direction, right? He followed the will of his Father in heaven. Well, what is John writing here? He's saying we walk in that same direction. Our intent, our desire, our changed heart is in that direction. That's the whole point. If you say you've been saved and you're walking in the other direction, or you spend your life meandering off in some other direction that's self-serving, I'm going to go out on a limb. I can't answer it for you. Only you can by the power of the Spirit. But I'm going to estimate that you were never saved. Because you have no affinity for him. That's what the, that's what the Bible teaches us. Otherwise, God is impotent, right? I mean, Philippians 1.6, right? He will complete a good thing he started in you in salvation. Otherwise, God's impotent. He can't get the job done. So you know, supposedly he changes you at salvation. You're born again. You're made alive in Christ Jesus, but yet you can just drop on the floor dead or even run in the opposite direction. No way. That's antithetical to biblical doctrine. But yet there are a lot of Christian churches out there right now, 10.24 in the morning, teaching lies, telling people it's okay. As long as you said that little prayer with grandma on your arm, you know, and you took the wafer and this kind of a thing, you're good. All lies. All lies, unless there's a reality to it. Could you be saved in that circumstance? Yeah, maybe some of you are. Some of you, I really was saved. My grandmother was right here. I was like 15 years old. She, you know, I, 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 you know, I don't know. How do I know that? But that's not the reason you were saved. That's the point. That is circumstantial. The litmus test is what even comes after. Does the Holy Spirit tell you? Does God the Holy Spirit affirm in you? You're saved. Or do you got to wear a t-shirt to feel saved? Or do you got to come to church on Sundays to feel saved? Again, the point on the board, as true believers, we are acutely aware of God's holiness and presence and power of sin, and we are grateful for the God-given ability to confess and repent from it. That was 1 John, right? If you say you don't even have any sin, you're a liar, and the truth is not in you. As believers, we can see God's work in us. I just alluded to this a moment ago. Has it changed yet? There it is. Okay. As true believers, as patterns of sin decrease, 
patterns of obedience increase. John 8.31, 1 John 2, 1-7, as patterns of sin decrease. Why would that happen, right? Why would that happen? Because as you mature in the faith, you realize that a lot of the sin, the vestiges of sin, we still have a flesh after we're saved, and that thing really likes to sin. A lot of that stuff gets cut off as you mature. I always think, I know I'm a nerd. I always think of a dampening sine wave. You know the sine wave just looks like a wave, like an ocean wave, right? And then over time it dampens. It just kind of goes like this. And then it kind of flat lines out. You get what I'm saying? Right? You get more stable, right? You're kind of wobbly in the beginning. After so- Your direction's right. The wave's going in the right direction, but you're wobbly, right? If, you know, if this is the, this is the, the true line that Jesus Christ worked per- walked perfectly, right? No variation whatsoever. We're like this. And we get older and older and older, right? And then once you're like John Gardner's age, you're like way over here somewhere. But he's an anomaly because he's still doing this, right? It's weird. You don't even come to church anymore. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know what I'm saying. You can look back. Some of you look back, I don't know, a year ago. And you're like, man, I'm doing so much better in this area of weakness in my life because God's promises were real. He promised to change me, and I'm changed. Anyways, that's what the Bible says. Now, to come full circle, we believers have an intrinsic love for the Lord God because he has most definitely changed us. Again, up here on the board, as true believers, but now faith, hope, love, abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. 1 Corinthians 13, 13. We love God and others with a love previously unknown to us. Previously unknown to us. Can anybody say an amen to that, that before you were saved, all you really could think about was yourself. Even the love you had for others was a selfish love. What can they do for me? And as long as they continue to do nice things or good things to me, I will love them. That's a very different... You can imagine if Jesus was like that. Jesus came to his own people and were like, they, they hung him. They murdered him. Imagine if Jesus' love was like that. No, Jesus' love was what we call an objective love, not a subjective love. It's not about the subject, it's about the object. It's about us. We love because of who we are in Christ Jesus. You see? That's a love that an unbeliever doesn't even know. That's not a love that, that's a supernatural love. In other words, it's a Christ-like Love. John 13, 35, 1 Thessalonians 4, 9, 1 John 2, 9 to 11, 3, 16 to 19, and 4, 19. Again, no shortage on the topic of love. So what a wonderful series on eternal assurance. Um, and so, I, again, I say thank you, Scott, for listening to the Holy Spirit. Um, I was thinking about that again. If we're on the topic of eternal assurance, eternal security, if we're certain about one thing, in this life, as true believers, it's our hope, right? Isn't that what we cling to? Because, I mean, isn't life difficult now, right? Isn't it a real pain sometimes? It is. This is not as good as it gets. It is for an unbeliever, 
But for a believer, this life, this 70, 80 years, 50 years, whatever you live, this is not even close to being as good as it gets. Not even close. We have a hope, and that hope rests squarely on the shoulders of Christ. So reflect with me for a moment. The, the great question every person in human history has had to ask or make for themselves was, or is, is Jesus Christ who he said he is? Is Jesus, these just crashed by the way, is Jesus Christ who he said he is? Ask that question. That's the great question. Because we're all, according to the Bible, every person above the theological age we might call of accountability, whatever you want, I don't get into the theology of it, but every person, let's say, is faced with this question. Is Jesus Christ who he said he is? That's, a big, that's the big question. Is Jesus truly the Son of God? Co-equal and co-eternal with the holy God of the universe. Is he? Is Jesus also the Son of Man, the mediator, the one who came out of heaven to die a humble death on the cross? He's a toast again. All right, we're going no slides again. We're going to have to fix it. We're trying, by the way. We're trying everything. Trust me. Unless somebody wants to come up and, you know, and pay for a brand new professional system. Everybody's like, I'm good without slides. <laughs> they were just, you know, they were just distractions anyway. <laughs> oh, my goodness. What? What do you got? Oh, okay. All right, you at the right spot? Is John 3.16 next? All right, cool. I'll just say next slide then. Cool. I don't even have to do anything. Let's back up. The great, the, the great, the great question, <laughs> Elma Fudd. Uh, you guys, this is hard. It's serious. You guys, this thing's going, it's flashing at me. I have ADD, right? Turn it off. I got Todd jumping out. They're in the back going, I'm like, I don't know sign language. What is this? We don't rehearse this stuff. Uh, is Jesus Christ who he said he is? That's the great question that every human being that's ever lived has had to answer. Is Jesus truly the Son of God, co-equal and co-eternal with the holy God of the universe? Is Jesus also the Son of Man, the mediator, the one who came out of heaven to die a humble death on a cross? Is Jesus the one who conquered death itself by overcoming the grave? When we see or hear the likes of John 3.16, for example, up here on the board, this is cool. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. When we read this verse in Holy Scripture, and when it comes to that four-word phrase, whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him, do we truly believe in the person, Jesus Christ? The person. If I say to you right now, I believe in you, am I just saying that 
I believe that you have brown hair. I believe in you because you're sitting in your seat. No, I believe in you. I know you, as the Bible would say. I know you. I know you at a level that I believe in you. Do you think I'm just talking about like superficial stuff? Or do you, is it much deeper than that? So when the Bible says whoever believes in him, do you think it's just, oh yeah, Jesus, yeah, he lived like a couple thousand years ago. I believe he died on the cross. Yep, yep, yep. Um, seemed like a good guy to me. Oh, I have to say I believe in him to go to heaven, to get that free ticket to heaven? Yeah, I believe in him. What do you think? I'm going to say that's a fraud. I'm going to say that's, a, that's some vain attempt to try to weasel your way into heaven while still living for yourself. Um, do we truly believe in the person, Jesus Christ? Do we believe he wasn't a liar, a fraud, a charlatan? Do, if we believe in him fully, and not in ourselves, by ourselves, for ourselves, then we also believe and place our hope in Holy Scripture. Go to Colossians 1, verse 1, for example. If we believe in him, then we believe in Colossians 1. Okay? When you read this, I don't know about you, but as a believer, when I read Colossians 1, I get giddy. Honest to goodness, there's a part of me that gets giddy, even if I'm in a cranky mood, right, and I'm not in the mood. You know, it happens, right? Some of you are like, oh, what a heathen. Okay. Colossians 1.1. 1, 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you have, or just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And also from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Think of our hope again, right? He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. 
all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Again, when we read the likes of John 3.16, whoever believes in him, right? Those four words. When we read that, is it fully impregnated with the fullness of who and what Christ is? Didn't we just read a ton about him? Is, is whoever believes in him, does it include what we just read? Does it include him or just some silly prayer, some ruse, right? What, what is it? Do we believe in a person or just some, I don't know, facts about a person? Again, when we read John 3.16, is it him we see or is it we just read it like a punchline, you know, because there's a big difference. Remember when I shared with you a bit of doctrine that I had wrong in my own soul for quite some time and I gave you a couple of passages that convicted me to essentially trash what I believed to be true. And that's what started the Gospel Reload back in 2015, by the way. I was so flatly convicted. Do you remember? We had over 1,400 hours of messages, videos, audio, uh, even, even um, writings, blogs even. I threw them all in the garbage because they were tainted. I said, no, I'm not going to propagate. I'd rather start new. And I remember looking at my, looking at, I redid the website myself, and I said, this is it. It was like a flat, like a clean slate again. And God said, that's very pleasing to me, because this, you know, I know that this isn't about you. This isn't about Ed Collins with his 1,400 lessons, and look at my legacy. <laughs> right? Bow down before me. Uh, this is about the truth. This is about the truth. And when you're convicted like that, and I hope you do it in your own life, in your own way, because everybody in here has their own ministry. If you got something wrong, cut it off. Say, I had it wrong. I've been convicted. Cut it off. Start new. Start fresh. Start correct. Start righteous. So I gave you a couple that had convicted me. They weren't all of them. Obviously, I read the entire Bible, but that was like the, the spark of it. Um, and it had everything to do with saving faith. I'll give you the passage, though. The one, I didn't give you the passage that actually started the whole thing. I'll give you the one that started the whole thing. Go to Matthew 13, 18. Matthew 13, 18. Remember, the parable of the sower is what we would call the, again, we use the word preeminent, or the parable of parables. If you don't have this parable right, the rest of them don't make sense. And you, you end up with a perverted gospel, even. One that allows for phonies um, and fakes 
and professors of faith that have never known Christ, and Christ has never known them. You have to get this one parable right. And I had it wrong for a long time. Matthew 13, 8. Hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on, be on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves, what's that last word? Unfruitful. Unfruitful, okay? So everything up until this point in this parable has borne zero fruit. None. Unfruitful. Do you understand? Then look at verse 23. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case, a hundredfold, another sixty, and in another thirty. All that's saying is people bear different amounts of fruit, but they all bear fruit. Do you see the distinction? I used to think that the last three categories in the parable were all believers. The truth is actually that only the last category, which is verse 23 of the four, represents believers who actually produce fruit. Again, to say that someone can be saved and never produce fruit is to say that God is impotent. Do you want to say that? I don't. I know it's accommodating for your children, or Uncle Jimmy, or this person, some person that you love. I know that makes it easier for you to sleep at night, but you're a fool. Why would that make it easy? That's selfish. Why would you want to just sleep at night? Who's that about anyways? Is that about the salvation of another person who's destined for hell? Or is that about you being able to get some shut-eye? Are we going to be honest here? Are we going to be truthful here? Are we going to read the Bible for what it actually says here? Are we going to read it with a lens that makes it accommodating for the human flesh, including our own? The Bible clearly teaches us that a believer will, not maybe, not sort of, will produce good fruit because that's all a good tree can produce. Does that make sense? Who said that a good tree bears good fruit? Jesus Christ said that. So if you're a good tree, if you've been saved, in other words, you will bear good fruit. Not maybe, not sort of, not for a little period of time until the thorns choke you out or the world or the riches or whatever it is that makes you fall away. Not that little thing. Sorry, folks, that doesn't count. I know some of you are like, but that describes my children. Yes, so? So it describes your children. Maybe you should get back to it then. 
This little sliver in time does not count. Sorry. So says the Bible. It doesn't count. Many churches right now have people that are unbelievers in them. And eventually they fall away. Or maybe they play, the, play their cards the whole, you know, and they, they go because it, it looks good on paper. You know, or it keeps their elderly parents happy. You know, okay, I'll go on Christmas and I'll go on Easter and I'll play this little game and I'll put my little bonnet on, you know, and I'll go to the, you know, Colt State Park things and, you know, I'll even, you know, sing hallelujah and do all this stuff just to keep my parents happy, keep them off my back. Um, is that about a relationship with Jesus Christ? Or is that about some game being played? Hmm. The Bible clearly teaches us that a believer will produce good fruit because that's all a good tree can produce. Therefore, the first three categories are all unbelievers. So, for a person who reads John 3.16, the reason I went to there is because to edify John 3.16. The person who reads John 3.16 and gets all excited for a time, but ultimately falls away from the faith. Well, the simple fact is that they were never saved, even though they proclaimed to be. Remember, the emphasis at the start of this message with respect to eternal security, once, once a person is saved, they are always saved. Once a person is saved. Do you understand? Once they don't fall away. Once they stop falling away. You know that for a fact. A lot of people come up to the gospel and they shrink away. They come up to the gospel and they fade away. They come up to the gospel and they stay. And maybe that's a vision of them going to church every five years. They come into the gospel, they get the truth, they're like, not ready. They come into the gospel, something chokes them out, they're not ready. You understand what I'm saying? That happens. People waffle in and out of the faith. Read Hebrews 6 when you go home. They waffle in and out of the faith. They get a taste of it, but then they fall away. That person was never saved. Once saved, always saved. Once you're saved, Emphasis on once you're saved, then you're always saved. I'll quote something I received from Brenda Church recently um, after I reached out to her and Billy to see how they are faring. This is, these are her words. She says, still holding strong to the truth of the word of God, still trying to spread the word to my patients, remember she's a nurse, and those we care about, once it's instilled in your heart and you live it, it is your life and who you are. There's nothing that can deter one from the love of God and his gracious gift of Christ. The world is falling apart, as Romans so states. People don't even know right from wrong anymore, as the institution which God has designed for man has been destroyed by the evil hearts of man. Yes, our fallen world is spiraling and falling fast, and we all know why. My heart aches for those who don't know or even want to know our Savior. Confidence in Christ, confidence in the Lord, is all what we need or that we need to sustain in this dying and dead generation. We know it's only going to get worse until Christ comes. We miss everybody, and we'll see you soon. All my love and love in Christ, Brenda. Miss you all so much. Especially you, Pastor Ed, because you're awesome. <laughs> <laughs>
That part was added. If it wasn't obvious, I added that. Brenda, I'm sorry. But when I read that to you, did you, did you hear the undying, unerring love for our Savior in our words? Yeah, that's why I shared it. That's what a true believer looks like. That's the fruit Jesus was talking about in the parable of the soils. Tammy and I were talking about this the other day as well. To me, it's about commitment. Uh-oh. It's the other word. The C word. People hear the P word, patience. It's like, oh, no. Commitment. The C word. To me, it's about commitment. I'm, I'm not saying I'm the greatest believer to ever walk the earth, hardly. But I'm just going to share my own. And the Bible says it's okay because you're to imitate my faith. So I'm just sharing. I feel like I'm married to Jesus, and that's that. Does that make sense? I feel like I'm married to Jesus, and that's that. That's it. I'm committed to him and him alone. That's it. That's, that's my mindset, you see? He chose to marry me. I said, okay, I'm in. And we're married. We're betrothed, right? But that's it. That's it. I'm done. There's no, like, look, even when I have those days where, I, you know, and some of you married people are like, yep, I've had those. You know, where I don't want to be married, you know, because I want to be a sinner, you know those days? Even those days, he never leaves me, and I never leave him. He never leaves me, I never leave him. Why? Because he's my husband. And I'm committed to him. Even though... I'm an adulterous sinner. Even though every time I sin, I know that he's with me. Remember, he lives inside of us, right? He's with me when I'm sinning. But you know what? He never leaves me and I never leave him. Because I'm committed to him. And that's my mindset, you see? That's my mindset. For a true believer in Christ, this is the hallmark that distinguishes them from the posers up here on the board. Hey, up on the board. <laughs> posers are non-committal. Yep. That's what makes them a poser. I love you. Where'd you go? Posers are non-committal. Now, Think about non-committal for a moment. A non-committal person is the one who secretly harbors plans of escape. You know, just in case. You know that one? They enter into a relationship and they've got a little escape hatch over here. You know what I'm saying? That's a non-committal person. They harbor secretly a plan of escape. Well, a true believer in Christ no longer possesses that kind of a plan. That plan no longer makes sense to a true believer. Where, like, like, like Peter said, right? I think it was Peter, right? Where am I going to go? Are you going to leave me too? Where are we going to go? You're the, you're the pinnacle. You're the best of all of us, infinitely so. Where am I going to go? Where are you going to go? 
A true believer in Christ no longer possesses that kind of a plan. Commitment is commitment. End of story. And that's why, honestly, that's why marriage is the analog here. If a person gets married and, you know, in the back of their mind, they secretly say, well, I hope this works out, but if it doesn't, I'll just get a divorce. And I'm not picking on anybody who's been married and divorced. That's not what this message is about, so get over yourself. But a person who goes into a marriage that way and says, well, if it works out, great. If it doesn't, we'll just get a divorce. If that person goes into a marriage like that, you know what? They are not really committed to that marriage. Because commitment is 100%. That's the whole point of commitment. You don't go into a marriage with an escape hatch. Same goes with salvation. Same goes with salvation. You don't go into a relationship with Jesus Christ with an escape hatch. Jesus clearly stated that a person who isn't willing to deny themselves cannot be his disciple. That is to say that a person who isn't willing to commit to him isn't really looking for the one and only relationship that leads to salvation. They're not looking for that. They're hedging a bet. Grandma says if I say this prayer, I get a free tip, trip to this wonderful place called heaven, and you know what? It sounds a heck of a lot better than hell. So I'm going to hedge my bets. That is not a relationship. Does that make sense? That's the gist of the parable of the soils. Read Matthew 13 on your own today when you get a chance. All right, one more tidbit from Thursday's message. Go to 2 Timothy 1.12. 2 Timothy 1.12. Second Timothy 1, verse 12. <clears throat> Again, really, honestly, I only plucked out Jesus' explanation of the parable of the soils. The actual original telling of it is prior to that, in, in that chapter. It's worth your read. Second Timothy 1, 12. I've got part B here. Does, does that verse start with, but I am not ashamed? Okay, good. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. I know him. I don't know just facts about him. I know him, and I'm convinced. Remember the Spirit's help is right there? How do we know? The Spirit will tell us. Oh, so that's what a believer's heart looks like. For I know whom I have believed. John 3.16, anyone? Whoever believes in him, I know who I believed in. And I'm convinced, with the Spirit's help, I'm convicted, with the Spirit's help, that He's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. This confidence is fruit of our salvation. Up here on the board, the believer's assurance may we believers rest assured, as we should, being in union forever with Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. John 14, 1 to 27, let, your, let not your hearts be troubled. That was the second part of the title of that series, right? Eternal assurance, 
let not your hearts be troubled. But I want, you, I want to take you to John 14, 1. Go there quickly. John 14, verse 1. I want to show you something else. Just because there's been so much emphasis on Him, on His person, on believing in Him. And that is the distinction. Once saved, always saved. Emphasis on once. Right? Fact. John 14, 1. Reads, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. John 14, 1. Believe in God. Believe also in me. So please don't miss Jesus' language here. We just spent the last chunk of this message talking about this very thing. Jesus clearly states that we are to believe in God, believe also in him, in me, he says, right? Do you see how personal Jesus makes this for us? It'd be like, it's, it's, I envision it this way, right? Envision it this way. He's standing right in front of us, and he's looking you in the eye, and he says, do you believe in me? Look me in the eye. Do you believe in me? Do you believe that I'm a fraud? Do you believe every last thing I've ever said? Because I'm, if I'm even one iota of fake, you might as well throw it all out. Do you believe everything I've said to you? Look me in the eye. Do you believe me? That's how intimate it is. That's what salvation looks like. Salvation implies a commitment to the person of Jesus Christ, not just his doctrines or historical facts, etc. And this dovetails nicely with last Sunday's message up here on the board. Proverbs 17, Wisdom is a series title, right? We are Christ's bride. Christ has gone to prepare a home for his bride, John 14, 1-4. The church, we believers. Those who were saved prior to the church age will be there to celebrate our marriage in heaven. Remember the big the feast, the ceremony, Revelation 19, 6-9? The marriage of the Lamb? They're all going to be there with us. It's going to be fantastic. I heard in the Eagles song. Remember, you guys remember the Eagles, the band, right? All the guitar players, all those guys, right? I heard the Eagles song the other day titled Lion Eyes. Anybody remember that? You can't hide. Brendan, give me a beat. He's like, I play guitar, I don't do beats. Right? Lion Eyes. It's about a girl that marries an old rich man for his money. But she never really committed to him. That's the gist of the song. It's a sad song. It's got an incredible melody and a beat to it. But it's a sad song. Here's a couple of verses. You can't lie. You can't hide your lion eyes. And your smile is a thin disguise. I thought by now you'd realize there ain't no way to hide your lion eyes. Fast forward. My, oh, my. Some of you are singing in your head. I know the song. I'm very cautious to bring up a, a secular song behind a pulpit, but there's a point to it. My, oh, my. You sure know how to arrange things. You set it up so well, so carefully. Ain't it funny how your new life didn't change things? You're still the same old girl you used to be. You can't hide your lion eyes. Is my point to entice you to listen to the Eagles song? Nope. My point is, there's a reason 
why the Bible uses marriage as a running analogy for salvation. Up here on the board. I'll call it lion eyes. A person who supposes to accept Jesus' hand in marriage but remains noncommittal is refused by Christ at the altar. He says, no. No. I want all of you. You're not going to come to me and say, I want to keep a little bit of my own life for me. I want to at least know you want me. You know me. You believe in me. I want you to commit to me. I want that at least to be where your heart is at. I want you to be humble right now. Do you want me? Do you want to commit to me? Or do you want to continue playing that game? A person who supposes to accept Jesus' hand in marriage but remains noncommittal is refused by Christ at the altar. Jesus isn't a sugar daddy for grace that will allow others to use and abuse him. This concept seems to be lost on many professing so-called Christians. In other words, profession, which is man's word, isn't always confession, which is man saying the same thing as God. Do you want me, says Jesus Christ? Do you want me? Because I want you. But do you want me? Do you remember not that long ago what type of person Jesus despises? Hypocrites. Jesus despises hypocrites. He can live with someone who says, like the tax collector, right? Beating their chest. Have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. He can't stand the Pharisee who said, I'm glad I'm not like that guy. And he's pointing to the tax collector. I pay my tithes. I do all this stuff. Yeah, in other words, you're a hypocrite. You go to hell. This one's coming with me. You get kicked off the altar. I never knew you. Out of here. The sinner, the humble one, the one who says, I'm, I, I want you. I'm not perfect. I'm probably going to keep on sinning, but I want you. That one comes with me. That one comes with me. A hypocrite is someone who, when Jesus proposes to them, says, oh, yes, when they remain noncommittal. You realize that many so-called Christian religions out there peddle a gospel that actually allows for this? A gospel that's based on perverted interpretations of baseline parables like the parable of the, of the soils. These so-called Christian religions boast this is a grotesque term, and I have to throw it out there because it's, the whole idea is grotesque. Open marriages. You know what that means in this world? Open marriages means you can be married to someone and have sex with anybody else you want. That is so grotesque, it's foul. I hate to even say it, I apologize. But that's how gross this proposition is. Do you see it? Yeah, I'll, I'll take your hand in marriage as long as it's an open marriage. As long as I can still go around, fool around, I'll never commit to you fully. That's lying eyes, right? That's the whole idea. I'll marry you because you're rich and you've got a pathway to heaven. I'll take your hand, but I would, I'm never really committed to you. I plan on whoring out behind your back, which is impossible because he lives inside of you. So every time you whore out, he's with you. You're dragging him into that bed that you're defiling. Um... 
That's gross, right? That's how gross that proposition is. You know, get married to Jesus and you won't ever need to expect to change your old way of living. In other words, you know, like these people propose that they can have their cake and eat it too, that type of thing. And the whole thing's gross. Jesus, our true husband, has never agreed to that arrangement. Never. He said, unless you're willing to deny yourself, you can't be my disciple. End of story. I got to at least want to see that desire for me in you. He's never agreed to that arrangement. Hence Paul's defense. Go to 2 Corinthians 11, 3. I'll pick a spot because we still have communion service. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3. And we'll pull this. I'll just wrap us back into our primary course of study and then I'll close. 2 Corinthians 11, 3. Paul feared this stuff. I, as a good shepherd, an under-shepherd, fear this thing. False religions in this world, just because they have a cross on the top of their building, does not mean that they're necessarily a, a group of believers even. That the doctrine that's being pushed out from that pulpit, the one that makes you know the guys that stand behind the pulpits a lot of money, just as a byproduct, you know. Uh, it's all grotesque. Doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that they're actually teaching the truth. 2 Corinthians 11.3, But I am afraid that, as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus, yep, they, they exist, another one, a counterfeit one, than the one we proclaimed. Or if you receive a different spirit, yep, they exist too, from the one you received, or you accept a different gospel, yep, that exists too, from the one you accepted, you put up with it, Readily enough. That's your warning this morning. Do what I'm doing. Have the integrity to the word of truth to say, this is what the Bible says. That's it. Just, just go with that. This is what the Bible says. This is what I'm convicted of. That's that. Stop reading the Bible and trying to fit it into your life. Do you understand? Your life, is, your life doesn't interpret the Bible. The Bible interpretates your life. Does that make sense? You don't come to the Bible with your life and try to jam it in the cracks, right? You don't do that. That's called lawyering. Hasatan. That's where Satan gets his name from. Prosecutor, right? Lawyering. He's a lawyer. He's the best of the best. That's what the human flesh tries to do, is come to the Bible try to get into heaven, but come into the Bible and fill in all the cracks and find all the loopholes and say, see, I can do this. I can still be a whole bag. I can still do this kind of thing. I can still, you know, right? And I can do this kind of stuff. And No, it doesn't work. I never knew you. But didn't we do all this stuff? So, you were a religious fool. You weren't looking for me. You weren't looking for me. You were looking for the goodies I have. Like that woman in Lion Eyes, right? You just wanted to marry yourself a sugar daddy because he had all the goods. Go away. I never knew you. You're not one of mine. My sheep hear my voice and you know what they do? They follow me. 
They don't run away to some dude they've got stuffed away in the closet. They love me. They're committed to me. Does that make sense? One last point, and then we'll go to communion service. Last Sunday, I gave you the counterfeit $100 bill analogy. And the temptation was that, you know, you actually use a counterfeit, a known counterfeit. You use it for something to satisfy your flesh because that counterfeit might fool a lot of people out there in the world, right? You know it's counterfeit, but like, man, it looks like real. We can get a nice dinner. We'll just slip it to the waitress. She's not going to pay attention, right? Go get a nice meal. The whole thing's a farce. That's not a blessing. That's a counterfeit. The point was that we mustn't be tempted into sinning this way. If we discern something's a counterfeit, we need to burn it up or cut it off, as Jesus would say. The last thing we want to do is begin merchandising with it. And that brings us back to our primary course of study, and I promise I will stop after one more verse after that. <laughs> I got to, though. You'll see why. Honestly, you'll see why. Go to Proverbs 17.1 real quick. Are you there? Come on, you guys are making fun of me. You better speed up. Proverbs 17.1. This just pulls all of that stuff that we got this past week back to our primary course of study. Proverbs 17, verse 1. Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. Money is the root of all kinds of evil. Last time I checked, the love of it. If you understand the way the Bible is written, you know that it is the very mind of Christ. So when you read Proverbs 17.1, you know what you're reading? You are literally, not kind of, not, oh, wow, that guy said something Christ would say. You are literally reading the mind of Christ. Who inspired the Bible? His spirit. Who's lockstep with Christ? Uh, the spirit. You are literally reading Christ's mind. Just because the, his advent hadn't occurred yet, doesn't mean that that's not his mind. His mind isn't only the red letters, in other words. The entire, this whole thing is Christ's mind. How about that? Fair enough? He said, better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. So when you read that, you have to understand that that's the very mind of Christ, which means that his wisdom is timeless. Remember, Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So says Holy Scripture. Case in point, fast forward, go to Mark 8.34. Mark, I might as well just finish. It's right there. I'm serious. As much, can you guys make it this much? It doesn't matter if you just nodded your head, but thank you, Melissa, because we're going to do it anyways. See what I did there? I just dragged you guys along a little bit. It's not that late. <laughs> Mark 8.34. It's worth it. Look. How many times have I alluded to this already? This morning. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's the big if. You want to come after me? You've got to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's We'll save it. In other words, you have to be willing to give it up. Give up that old life. Give up the commitment to your old life. That's the call. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not some prayer. It's not some, um, you know, 
ritual or religious thing. It's something very intimate between you and the Lord. Do you want me? I'm proposing to you. That's the gospel. It's like a proposal, right? I'm proposing to you. I want you to be part of my bride. I want you to be my bride. But look me in the eye when you say, yes, you want to do this. Look me in the eye. Don't have one eye over your shoulder looking at your lover over here. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me, in my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, are you listening? Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. You understand? So when we read about wisdom that predates Christ's advent even here on earth, guess what? It's still Christ's wisdom. Just dwell on that. Amen? Just dwell on that. All right, let's get the communion service elements ready, guys. Our first time through. Thank you, gentlemen. I think after a message like that, there doesn't need to be a whole lot said other than when we partake in this uh, communion service, let's remember uh, the person, the one that chose to marry us, the one whom we're committed to. Amen? For I received from the Lord that, or what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. 
do this in remembrance of me, in remembrance of his person. Let's eat the bread. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, in remembrance of his work. Let's drink the cup. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege of learning your word here this morning, of taking in truth that sets us free, Father. Thank you for your patience along the way. We are stubborn, Lord, but we're committed. We sin, but we come back to you every time, Father. Thank you so much for giving us that faith that never fails. Father, we just ask for your blessings on all the things that we've learned here this morning as we take them back to the privacy of our own souls, to our families, and then your will be done out to a world that's just decaying, Father. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.